A man with a conviction is a hard man to change. Tell him you disagree and he turns away. Show him facts or figures and he questions your sources. Appeal to logic and he fails to see your point. At 6 o'clock on Christmas Eve 1954, a small group of people gathered on the streets outside Dorothy Martin's home in Oak Park, Illinois, singing Christmas carols and waiting. But they were not celebrating the birth of Jesus. They were waiting to depart the earth before the end of the world and 200 more people came to watch. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Psych Floor podcast. On today's episode, we're going to explore the concept of cognitive dissonance, the psychological discomfort of believing and acting under different beliefs. This could happen when you do something that goes against the value that is very important to you, or maybe you've learned a new piece of information that, you know, kind of disagrees with this long-standing belief or opinion that you have had for years. Because as humans, we generally prefer for our world to make sense, and so cognitive dissonance can be really distressing and fill us with anxiety. And that's why we often respond to this kind of concept by doing mental gymnastics to feel like things make sense again. So, just to give you an example, let's have a look at some everyday instances of this psychological discomfort. Let's say that you have a dog that you take for daily walks around your neighbourhood and like any responsible dog owner, you carry plastic bags and always clean up after your dog. But one day you realise that you forgot these bags and halfway through the walk, your dog decided that this is the moment to do his business. So you take a quick look around and no one's there, you call your dog and kind of just quickly walk away. But once you're home, you begin to feel guilty and you know it's not right to leave your dog's mess. Because what if someone steps in it? Or what if it ruins someone's garden? It's just one time you tell yourself. You know, you've run out of bags, you'll replace them and always pick up after your dog in the future. This was just a one-off. And besides, it's not like you're the only one who does it. You've seen other dog messes in the neighbourhood and if other people don't pick up after their dogs, why should you have to? This is the kind of mental gymnastics that we are talking about. Another very, very popular, almost global concept is meat eating. You consider yourself an animal lover. You've always had pets and whenever possible you purchase products that are not tested on animals, but you also feel guilty because you enjoy eating meat. Though you know some animals are kept in inhumane conditions before being butchered, you feel guilty because you can't afford a 100% meat-free diet, maybe it's not realistic for you. In the end, you decide to start buying cage-free and better alternatives, and maybe start practicing a one-day-a-week no-meat kind of plan. This then reduces the guilt and helps you bridge the gap between your love for animals and also your diet. But why are we talking about this today and what does this have to do with the crazy introduction to today's episode? Well, this concept was actually first explored in detail in the groundbreaking work of Leon Festinger and his colleagues, who infiltrated a cult insisting on escaping the earth with otherworldly beings. In a way, one of their most prevalent psychological concepts today is all due to the aliens who didn't show up for Christmas. In late September 1954, the Lake City newspaper carried a two-column story on the back page headlined Prophecy from Planet Clarion. Call to city. Flee the flood. El Swampus on December 21st. The body of the story explained further. Lake City will be destroyed by a flood from Great Lake just before dawn on December 21st, according to a suburban housewife. 
The story went on to report briefly the origin of Mrs. Martin's experiences and to quote several messages that seemed to indicate she had been chosen as a person to learn and transmit teachings from the superior beings, who she called the guardians. It all started with a prophecy that a massive flood was coming on December 21st, 1954. The message was just one of many that Martin, who was involved in Scientology and had an interest in flying saucers, claimed to receive from the beings. She goes on to say, I felt kind of a tingling or numbness in my arm. My whole arm felt warm right up to the shoulder, she said when asked about the way she would receive these messages. Without knowing why, I picked up the pencil and a pad that were lying on the table near my bed. My hand began to write in another handwriting. I looked at the handwriting and it was strangely familiar, but I knew it was not my own. That's when I realized that someone else was using my hand. She goes on to say, I've asked, will you identify yourself? And they did. I was much surprised to find that it was my father who had passed away. As strange as it might have been, this was by no means the first time Martin had experienced something supernatural, and in fact, somewhat 15 years earlier, she began attending lectures on spirituality, developed a deep strain of curiosity about cosmos, her own nature, and started exploring a variety of sources of enlightenment. About the same time she began to take interest in Scientology, she started receiving messages from these other world beings. During her time of attending Scientology lectures, she had become actively interested in one of the major popular mysteries of our time, flying saucers. Her interest led her to attend one or more lectures on the subject by an expert on saucers who expounded the belief that these objects did indeed transport visitors from outer space or other planets. At her father's command, she had then transmitted his first messages to her mother, who answered, as you may imagine, by ordering her to stop such nonsense, or at least to stop inflicting it upon her parent. It occurred to me, she then said, that if my father could use my hand, higher forces could use my hand too. I have always been interested in my fellow men, and I have always wanted to be of service to mankind. I don't mind telling you that I prayed very diligently that I would not fall into the wrong hands. Quickly after receiving the first messages, she then started to get in contact with a being she came to call the Elder Brother, and as more time went by, the other beings started to contact her too, specifically those from planet Clarion and Seros. On Easter morning, after awakening around 7am, Dorothy received the following message from the Elder Brother. I am always with you. The cares of the day cannot touch you. We will teach them that seek and are ready to follow in the light. I will take care of the details. Trust in us. Be patient and learn for we are there preparing the work for you before I come, which will be soon. You are directed to tell your experiences of my coming to you. It prepares the way in their hearts and I will come again to teach each of you. Those who do not believe shall see when the time is right. You can go and tell the world that we have at last contacted Earth. The bombs your scientists have been exploding have broken the barrier we come through. Your scientists call this the sonic barrier. And we have been trying to get through for many years. Now, to break away for a second, this is where I started wrinkling my forehead a little bit, because I was confused by this message. To the best of my knowledge, the sonic barrier is a hypothetical barrier to flight beyond the speed of sound. And humans in recent years have been regularly breaking this barrier due to the speed of aircraft travel, which produces a sonic boom 
or a bullet or the tip of a bullwhip that can also break this barrier and produce a crack. Once again, to the best of my knowledge, this is not a physical barrier and it's not like a bubble around the world or a glass dome. And so a bomb explosion is unlikely to, say, shatter this, as it doesn't have a physical form. But I'm clearly not a physicist or an engineer, so please feel free to leave me a comment with your opinion. And, you know, maybe this message makes sense, and maybe the Guardian's message was simply just too complex for me to wrap my head around. One of the most dedicated followers of the cult was Charles, a staff doctor at Michigan State who claimed that he was fired for participating in the spiritual group. However, his employers maintained that Charles was asked to resign after it came to light that he was teaching the cult's beliefs to his students and encouraging them to join. He was responsible for then encouraging others to join and essentially recruiting and building the cult. But a few of the believers who would end up singing carols with Martin on Christmas Eve weren't actually believers at all, they were scientists. Leon Festinger and colleagues started to take deeper interest in the cult in October and befriended some of the members around then. Once the trust was earned, they could slowly begin to infiltrate the cult dynamic, the social hierarchy and the philosophy behind it. In their book, When Prophecy Fails, they described their experiences while giving each involved party a different name for anonymity. According to the book, the spaceman's arrival was originally scheduled for 4 o'clock on December 17th. The followers were asked to remove any metal from their bodies, earrings, buttons, glasses, anything with metal parts had to be removed in order to safely board the spacecraft. The followers then went into the backyard and waited patiently for the spaceship to arrive. Ten minutes went by and then Martin, who was given the pseudonym Keech in the book, abruptly returned to the living room. Others trickled away and the last believer went back inside by about 5.30. In the house they discussed what went wrong, eventually landing on the explanation that it must just have been a practice session. The saucers would indeed land when the time was right, but everyone had to be well trained. They had to be well-drilled actors so that when the real time arrived, things would go smoothly. The spacemen were not testing the faithfulness, but they were simply unwilling to leave any possibility that the human allies would make a mistake. As we have discussed, when an event occurs that goes directly against our long-held beliefs, we resort to mental gymnastics in order to justify the event. In this case, the idea of training exercise to ensure no one flaked out, to ensure everything went smoothly and to prove the cult's loyalty to the Guardians was a much more convincing idea that played in line with the larger belief of the cult. They went wrong, they were just practicing and they did everything right and therefore that must mean the next time that will be for real. At midnight on the 17th, Dorothy claimed that she just received a message of the aliens coming right now right then, everyone had to go or risk being left behind. For her followers, this message served as a confirmation that the previous failure was in fact just training and this, this was definitely the real deal. So they scrambled outside being sure to remove any remaining metal from the persons. The book recalls, we got back outside and Edna took me aside and said, how about your bra? It has metal clasps, doesn't it? One of the observers reported. I went back in the house and I took my bra off. The only metal on me was now the filling in my teeth and I was afraid someone would mention those too. This time they waited until 2am and just as previously, nothing happened. 
But the next day, the Guardians reassured Martin with a long message that repeatedly stated, I have never been tardy, I have never kept you waiting, I have never disappointed you in anything. And so the second time an event directly contradicted the court's beliefs, the psychological discomfort was too unbearable. And therefore, once again, mental gymnastics in order to answer questions and still keep believing had to take place. It was easier to continuously delude themselves in light of hard evidence than to admit that the belief system could be wrong. At 6 o'clock on Christmas Eve 1954, a small group of people gathered on the street outside of Dorothy Marthing's home, Oak Park, Illinois, singing Christmas carols and waiting. But they were not celebrating the birth of Jesus. They were waiting to depart the earth before the end of the world and they had 200 more people that came to watch. After the aliens did not show up again, the cult had many onlookers as they have sent out a press release on the event. The cognitive dissonance was incredibly strong by this point as evidenced by this interview which took place between a news reporter and one of the cult members. I wanted to talk to you with reference to this business about, you know, you calling the paper to say you were going to be picked up at 6 o'clock this evening. I just wanted to find out what exactly happened. Didn't you say they sent a message that you should be packed and waiting at 6pm Christmas Eve? No. No? I'm sorry sir, weren't the spacemen supposed to pick you up at 6pm? Well, there was a spaceman in the crowd with a helmet on and a white gown and whatnot. Sorry, there was a spaceman in the crowd? Well, it was a little hard to tell, but of course, at the last one we broke up, where there was a very evidently a spaceman there, because he had his space helmet on, and he had a big white gown on. And what did he say? Did you talk to him? No, I didn't talk to him. Didn't you say you were going to be picked up by the spaceman? No. I'm sorry, why are you waiting out in the streets and singing carols then? Well, we just went out to sing Christmas carols. Oh, you just went out to sing Christmas carols? Well, and if anything happened, well, that's alright, you know, we live from one minute to another. Some very strange things have happened to us. I'm sorry, sir. Didn't you say you were hoping to be picked up by the spacemen? We were willing. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you account for the fact that no one showed up and they didn't pick you up? Well, as I told one of the other newsboys, I didn't think a spaceman would feel very welcome there in that crowd. Oh, a spaceman wouldn't feel very welcome there. No, I don't think so. Of course, there may have been some spacemen there, in disguise, you know, we couldn't see. I think, I think that's quite possible. After the events of that fateful Christmas Eve, some of the followers still kept on believing and reassuring others just as before. However, majority of them began to slowly lose faith and disperse. Dorothy, however, did not. She went on to be a founder of the Order of Sananda, which was one of the names the Guardians went by, according to her. In this new cult, she called herself Sister Thedra. The lesson to take away from this incredible concept and social experiment was perfectly captured in the opening statement of this episode. A man with a conviction is a hard man to change. Tell him you disagree and he turns away. Show him facts or figures and he questions your sources. Appeal to logic and he fails to see your point. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful day and I shall see you next time. Bye guys.